Good morning, Grace Point. So glad you're here with us today, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, we're thrilled you found us and we're thrilled that you're here. Today, we're going to continue our exploration of the question, what is progressive Christianity? Here at Grace Point, we call ourselves a progressive Christian church. And so since that is so central to who we are, since it shapes our ethos and our mission and our values and all that goes into this community, sometimes we we just need to pause and and think about who we are um, and, and dig down a little deeper on it. For, for many of us, and we talked last week about being progressive, really is about this openness and this unfinishedness. It's about being open to a journey. And for many, if not most of us, this journey has not been like flipping on a light switch. Like, it's, oh, it's super easy. I woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a progressive Christian today. That's not how it's been. It's more like we've been in the dark, kind of just trying to find our way around at times. Lots of doubts and questions and lots of uncertainties and lots of things that used to be feel certain no longer feel certain. Things that used to feel stable now feel squishy. Um, and we've been in this the dark kind of just dreaming that maybe one day there might be something called a light bulb. right? We haven't just flipped a switch on. And last week I mentioned sort of the, this idea of feeling a resonance with the story of Abraham. Um, and if you're not familiar with that story, when we meet Abraham, who is the, the locus, the, the beginning point, of three of the world's great religions. Um, When we meet Abraham, uh, he's actually not called Abraham. He's called Abram. And that name is actually really, really ironic because Abram means exalted father. But when we meet Abraham or Abram, he's around 75 or so years old and he doesn't have children. He and his wife Sarai have not been able to conceive. And so there's this moment when we first meet Abram where the the divine God calls Abram to undertake a journey. And that there's sort of this promise that if you undertake this journey, there will be a universal impact. It'll it'll bring blessing to everybody who exists. And here's the story. It's Genesis 12. The Lord said, and this this is where we really, there's a genealogy before this that introduces Abram. But this is where we actually meet him as a more three dimensional type character. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I'll curse. And the families, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And the next line is Abram Abram left just as the Lord told him. So yeah, there's this little wonky part with blessings and curses, which we we could deal with another time. But I love this line, all the families of earth will be blessed because of you. There's sort of this, Abram, take this journey. And if you do, it's not just going to benefit you. It'll benefit the whole world. I, I think for me, and I think for Grace Point, we are on this journey because we have this sense that even though it's unclear at times, and even though we sometimes have more questions than we do answers, we have this sense that we are headed toward a better, more human way to be Christian. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, When I say a a more human way to be Christian, I mean, often we see the Christian faith as being in tension with our humanity. We have to choose one or the other. And I actually think when we follow this path, uh, it actually should help us become better humans, not just better religious people, but, but better human beings. And most of us took this journey. Probably all of us have taken this journey because we had this sense that we're headed toward a more holistic, whole, better, more human Christian tradition. And I think that actually should be better for the world. A better, more healthy, whole Christian tradition benefits the world. Not because we're going to go around and convert everybody. Not because we're going to have world dominance as a religion. 
but because if we're living out the Jesus path in a way that is free, in a way that is compassionate and just, the world will be better for everybody, regardless of what religion they participate in. Like if we follow this path and we find a better way to be Christian, a more human way to be Christian, it'll change the world. And when I talk about a more human, I'm saying a way that is expansive and inclusive, a way that is just and generous, a way that isn't about self-preservation, which is where, unfortunately, religion tends to take us into our own self-preserved afterlife experience or to what is good for our religion's bottom line. But the reality is a, a more human, whole Christian tradition would seek the flourishing of all human beings, regardless of whatever label, religious or otherwise, they have. And part of this journey, for, for me, um, I've learned over these, of these years, has been processing the feelings and emotions that have accompanied this shifting of my faith from being grounded in certainty to being grounded in mystery. And that's the way I would talk about it. Grounded in certainty, and now my faith is more grounded in mystery. Like, I, I can't name it all. I can't, I can't name it. I can't put it in a box but there's something there that is, is going on. And so what I mean is that when I began to learn that the conservative paradigm I'd been given and been raised with wasn't the only option, and because being, as a kid, I would just um, assumed it was the only option, and we were kind of told that we were right, and people who, and maybe not, maybe explicitly, definitely, implicitly, people who saw things differently weren't as, and even other Christian groups, right? Like, we were, when I was a kid, we were really, really concerned for Methodists because they, they ordained women and drank socially. And we were just completely, we completely thrown off by that, right? So it wasn't just other religions, even within our own Christian tradition that we, we were suspect because our paradigm was right. Our beliefs were right. Our perspectives were the perspectives. And what I learned is that it actually wasn't the only option. And when I learned that, I began to feel anger I felt a sense of betrayal. I felt a deep sense of pain. And, and that sort of began to permeate a, a lot of different places and parts of my life. And, and, I, I, and it's not just that I was told, you know, oh, there, there aren't other paradigms that are right. Um, I've been told again and again that I shouldn't read books, that education was dangerous. Anything but the Bible is dangerous. I shouldn't take religion courses in college because essentially that would lead me down a slippery slope that would send me straight to heresy or hell, depending on how bad the heresy was, I guess. And they were partially right. <laughs> Learning new ideas and perspectives, um, discovering scholarship around the Bible and what we could actually begin to say, um, that scholars can actually say about the Bible, where it came from and what it is. All of that began a process for me. Um, but when I hit that slippery slope, and I was headed down, uh, it, it didn't take me to hell. Instead, uh, I began to understand that my head and my heart, which were being forced to live in uh, opposition to one another to accept so many of the beliefs I grew up with, when I learned that my head and my heart did not have to be enemies, and that to be faithful uh, as a Christian did not mean that my doubts and questions were bad, wrong, or sinful, that they were actually part of the journey and part of the process, that faithfulness is actually engaging the doubts and questions, that ignoring them and hiding from them and stuffing them and all the stuff that comes along with it actually isn't healthy. And the most healthy, faithful thing to do is to acknowledge the doubts, acknowledge the questions, acknowledge all of it, and, and begin to try to sort through and make peace with it. The anger I felt took a long time to process, partly because I, no, I had no idea what to do with it. And by the time I hit my full-on unraveling mode, um, I was on the job as a 20-something pastor 
um, who every week had to get up and give a sermon to people who um, were expecting a certain kind of sermon because they'd heard a certain kind of sermon with a certain kind of theology, a certain kind of interpretation. So I'm preparing sermons and I'm going to hospitals and doing funerals and performing weddings and providing pastoral care. And throughout the whole process, I am like a ball of yarn just unraveling on the job. And so I know as I began to start talking about um, what I was experiencing and how my faith was changing, um, I, I know that there were times when I talked about my experiences, my upbringing, and my, my previous conservative paradigm. I talked about that in ways that were probably really hurtful for people who had been a part of that process. And, and so I, I just didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and what I began to think about was how important metaphors are. <laughs> metaphors really matter because metaphors help us create meaning and they shape our understanding and our imagination. So metaphors help us understand and process uh, really complex and difficult things. And the primary metaphor I had for understanding my journey at this point when I'm in my early to mid-20s and I'm unraveling on the job was that of deconstruction and reconstruction. And I don't think anybody even told me that. It's just one of those things that I, I felt like was happening to me. And before I go further, I want to say that I, this metaphor is really helpful for lots and lots of people. Uh, we still use the language around our Wednesday night gathering. It's called Reconstruct. So I'm not here to say that these two metaphors, like this Reconstruct and Deconstruct is wrong. It's bad. You shouldn't use it. I'm here to say that for me, um, that worked to a point, And then the metaphor lost its significance for me because it created a whole other set of problems. Um, here's what I mean. The whole idea of deconstruction and reconstruction ended up putting me at odds with my own story because I didn't know what to do with it. Deconstruction is about removing one thing, right? It's about raising the, raising the building, getting all the debris out of the way, and then reconstruction is when we rebuild something. We put something else in its place. And for me, that process of deconstruction, what came along with it was trying to delete two decades plus worth of understanding and experiences and work. And, and I ended up feeling really disconnected from myself and from my own story. Like I was this new person now with this new framework and this new, these new lenses for seeing the world. But I didn't know how to relate to the other version of me that had spent 20 some years um, in a conservative Christian uh, framework. And, and so I felt disconnected from myself. I felt the need to jettison, to get rid of, to ignore the past um, and I didn't know what to do with the people and the practices that had shaped me in my most formative years. Um, although I have learned since that all of our years should be formative, right? Um, I wanted so badly to have one of those things um, that they had in the Men in Black movies where when somebody had seen an alien and they wanted to sort of, you know, erase that memory from them, they would hold this thing up, it would flash, and suddenly their memory about that event would be gone. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted some sort of experience like that because not only did I not know how to pro, uh, process the things that had been negative, I also didn't know how to process the things that had been positive. The relationships, the, the sermons the, that I had given or that I had listened to and enjoyed, just all of the things that happened, I didn't know what to do. Good, bad, ugly, I, I indifferent. I did not know what to do with it. Deconstruction did not offer me a way to deal with any of that stuff really. After the old structure was torn down and hauled off, I was left with a new theologically better structure. But, but what comes next? I mean, if our understanding is that part of the journey of a progressive Christian is to always be open to rethinking, reframing, reimagining, always be open to the fact that we're unfinished and are going to learn new things. My assumption is that we spend all this time reconstructing a new framework, and at some point, that's going to become a problem, and that's going to have to come down. And so for me... 
I needed to find a new metaphor or two for processing and sharing these experiences that I've been having. So I want to say this, if deconstruction, reconstruction works for you, fantastic. Do not, do not change it on my account. Um, it, maybe this will be helpful for you additionally, or maybe this will be helpful for you later when I'm going to share today. If you're here and you're looking for what I hope is a more integrative for me, an integrative uh, in an everything belongs sort of way, hopefully these, these metaphors I'm going to share will maybe um, give you some language for that. And so I wanted to share two metaphors. The first one I found that has really been helpful in describing the journey I've been on for the last 20 or so years is that I, I'm participating in an organic process. And here's what I mean. When I, I found that shifting my faith from sort of a, a concrete building blocks, that sort of building a structure perspective to an organic perspective, to an organic process, uh, has been really, really helpful. Then this metaphor emerged for me a couple of years ago when I was growing um, a small box garden at our house. We'd tried this a few years and we were at a new house at this point and I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to build, you know, I love being able to go outside and be like, look what, we grew our own vet. Like it's just, it was a really cool experience the first couple times it worked. So um, we had a box garden, we put some nutrient rich soil in it, and then we planted some things. I planted a few kinds of tomatoes, we love tomatoes, or I love tomatoes, and some of our kids love tomatoes, and planted some peppers and squash and zucchini. Who doesn't love squash and zucchini? And a few other, you know, things, I think some watermelon and, and uh, maybe some strawberries or something. We used nutrient-rich soil, watered it regularly, but throughout the summer, the garden didn't really produce much. It got sort of an infestation of some little, some sort of beetle that was eating the leaf. It just ended up really being um, a, a bust. Didn't grow very well. And so at the end of the season, with very little produce to show for the, the effort, I went out to deal with all the deadness that was in the garden. Now, I, I could have just removed it all. I could have said, gosh, this was such a bad bad experiences are bad. I want to get all this out of here and I want to get rid of it and we'll just start from scratch. The, the problem was if I had removed it all, the plants, the soil, and even gotten rid of the box and done everything from scratch, um, I, I could have done that. But instead, I mean, the problem is I'd be losing a lot. So instead, I thought about next year and what do I want the next year to be like? And then I thought about the fact that the, 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 the decaying plants we had in this box garden could actually serve a meaningful purpose looking forward into next year's garden. It could serve a meaningful purpose in the overall history of this box garden, about where it's going. So I got out my gardening tools and I began to turn over the dead plants into the soil. And I turned it all over and it was essentially the plants began that decomposition process in the soil. And over the winter months, that sort of happened, right? There's still but it's everything in that garden is dying and decaying. But actually, over the winter months, and as spring began to spring, um, this compost actually began, the death of these plants began to put new life into the soil. And, and actually, the dead plants in the, from the bust garden that didn't happen the year before actually became the energy and the nutrients for next season's hopeful growth. What if we spent our energy not creating new theological systems but cultivating a theologically infused practice. I mean, right? That, I think that's that's sort of the thing. It, it would have I could have removed all the stuff, and it, the garden would have been fresh and we could have started from scratch. But starting for, from scratch really isn't an option when you have plant life everywhere that's dying, decaying, waiting to give its energy and nutrients to something new, something else. What if we spent our energy? 
not creating new things to tear down, but instead by cultivating a theologically infused practice. And here's what I mean. We end up feeling the need often to defend and prop up systems, systems of thought, systems of, of government, right? Everything. We feel the need to prop up systems, ways of doing things. We tend to use theological systems to access some level of certainty. I mean, we, we would all say, oh, certainty is not a real thing, but that's ultimately what we have systems for, right? A theological system says we believe this, 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 and this about those things. And the reality is that can be helpful to a point. But when you end up in the realm of certainty, when you end up in the realm of we can't talk about this or question this or push back on that, you have a whole new set of issues. So if we looked at it from the perspective of the garden, it might be a slow process and it might require work and it might require pruning and watering. But the good news is that everything that goes into the soil matters. It all belongs. It all has significance in me. The dead plants that never grew, as they begin to compost and break down, they're giving new life to next year's produce. Everything in the soil matters. It has meaning, even if that meaning is simply that it's no longer useful for anything but compost. Even dead things can play a role in the growth of a future garden. Nothing ends up being wasted. Nothing ends up being a mistake. Everything ends up moving toward human flourishing or garden flourishing. So that, that metaphor of gardening, that of the organic process, has become really helpful for me because it's allowed me to see um, some of the parts of my own spiritual journey, which were so, I look back on with embarrassment and with difficulty where I said things, believed things, acted in ways that were so pompous and self-righteous and egocentric and just all the terrible things that I just want to say, I don't even want to think about that part. But the reality is um, that part is part of my garden and it's part of the organic process that I've been going through of decomposing and composting and then new growth. Uh, another uh, metaphor that has been really, really helpful for me is, um, is owning all of the layers. I can't help but think about the line from the Shrek movie where the ogre Shrek says, ogres are like onions. They have layers, <laughs> which is true about pretty much everyone in the world, right? We aren't these two-dimensional things. We are, to be human is to have lots and lots of layers. And I think we probably have layers we don't even know. We have layers on layers that we don't even know about for us. And that these layers stack over time as we grow and as we change and as we learn and as we experience life. Uh, another image uh, that may be helpful is like, if you look at the rings of a tree, they end up telling a story, right? They can tell you, the, they date the tree. They can tell you how long the tree's been around. They can give you a window into the climate that the trees exist in and to any sort of, you know, based on darkness and lightness of the rings, you can tell like what the season was, uh, what the season was in which they grew. And you can tell if there was a forest fire. You, there's just all sorts of things that when people who know what they're looking for, when a tree is sawed and you look at those rings, it begins to tell a story year by year about how this tree has grown. This has been helpful to me because um, part of this process of deconstruction or, or the language I'm trying to use is decomposition. It is, it's challenging because over the years of my life in ministry, I've held beliefs. Uh, as I said, I've given sermons. I've counseled people. I have acted and responded to people in ways that I am deeply embarrassed about in ways that I deeply regret now. And part of the struggle for me has been trying to sort out how to process the person I used to be, um, it, because I, I don't relate to him now in the same way that I used to. Um, it, you know, it's sort of like the Mission Impossible fashion. I've tried to disavow all knowledge 
of that former me, the guy who gave those sermons, the guy who had that haircut, the guy who um, gave that counsel to people. I, I've tried to sort of just disavow all knowledge and become this other new person. But one of the most helpful things that's been said to me over the past several years is having this conversation about, uh, I was having a conversation about feeling angry about what, I, you know, they held out on me. They didn't give me all the knowledge. And then I said all these things and believed all these things. And I know I probably impacted people and hurt people uh, because of the theological framework I was bringing. And I don't know what, to, I'm just so mad about it. And somebody said to me, um, listen, this is a journey and you have to own all the Joshes. And what he meant was, you have to own every single version of yourself, because every layer or every ring in the tree in your story has played a role in forming who you are. It's played a role in forming who I am. So I'm going to turn 40 this fall, but the truth is, I'm not going to just be 40. I'll also be three, and I'll also be 10, and I'll also be 16, and I'll also be 22, and some people may say I get stuck at 10 and 16. Maybe, maybe I haven't gotten beyond that. Um, but all the Joshes are in there. Every version of me, the, the other version, the other 39 versions of me are still in there. He, he didn't disappear. He didn't go away. He, he's, it's a ring. He exists. He's there. They've all played a role in me becoming who I am today. And owning those and owning all the Joshes for me does not mean I agree with 14-year-old Josh who thought he knew everything about the Bible and everything else. It does mean that I recognize that he's in there. It means I recognize that part of my journey, that that part of my story was a role, played a role in my process and my overall shaping. And I'm grateful that 14-year-old Josh didn't stop learning. And I'm glad 26-year-old Josh developed the courage to start sharing what he was learning. And my hope is that when my life is over, that layer after layer after layer, ring after ring after ring will tell a story of growth and transformation. And I hope that there are fresh rings and new layers that are forming right now and that will keep forming up until the end of my life. I hope when I leave this life, there was, I'm unfinished. If I had lived longer, there would have been more layers. If I had lived longer, there would have been more rings. And I know for so many of us who have gone through that process of our, our previous faith built on certainty and knowing fell apart. And then we were all in this, this it was confusing and it was chaotic and yet it was exciting and exhilarating. But what do we do with the old versions of us? We just tear them down and throw them away. That's, that's impossible. And it puts you at odds with you. And it's, and it's impossible to be at peace within the world when we can't be at peace within us with who we all the versions of us that are lined up. It doesn't mean we're celebrating all the versions, but it, we, we do recognize that they all belong because they've all played a role in the story. They've all added a ring to the tree. I love this from John Shelby Spong. True religion is not about possessing the truth. No religion does that. It is rather an invitation into a journey that leads one toward the mystery of God. Idolatry is religion pretending that it has all the answers. Right? Religion is ultimately a journey into mystery. And of course, there are things in our story. There are rings in the tree. There are layers to the onion. Right? There, there, are, there are seasons in the garden that ultimately weren't super successful. or They weren't things we're proud of, and they're not things we want to repeat. But as we turn them over and as we allow the decomposition and the composting to happen, those things can begin to be the nutrients from which the new begins to grow. Where actually the death and decay of last season becomes this season's flourishing. It's about um, opening ourselves to owning the whole story.
to being to trying to make peace with the whole story, knowing that while you don't celebrate it, it is an integral part of who you are and how you got here. So the journey isn't about having certainty or answers. Our best guesses are that. Right? There is no objective place from which we go and say, this is true and this is not true. This is reality. This is, it's ultimately we're, we're making decisions based on faith, right? But the journey, the journey that we, we so often want to dip into looking for answers and certainty, the journey is really about the adding of layers and rings, the continued growth moment by moment, year after year, that add up and culminate into a life that has been transformed into a more human human being. I think that's the goal. To be on this journey of adding layers, of adding rings, of turning the soil over in every single season, doing the work again. It's continued growth, moment by moment, year by year, experience by experience. And what that adds up to at the end of it all is a cumulative life of transformation. A life that ultimately is more human than it was when it entered the world. May, may that be our commitment in this community. Not to having all the answers but to participating in the process, the organic process of transformation, the, the, the adding of layers and rings, so that when we look back at the end of the story for us, we realize that we entered this world unfinished and we're leaving this world better than we found it, better, better than we were when we came in, right? And yet at the same time, we're gonna leave this world unfinished as well.